Hello and welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to write his dissertation, survive a pandemic, and now wildfires, and maybe eventually to get a job. Um, and today I'm very happy uh, to be joined by Seth Divas. Um, and I did not ask you how, how, how I should address you. What, Seth, tell us where people can find you and, and what your title is right now. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm used to every version of my name, so it's fine. But um, uh, I am currently actually between academic postings. I've just uh, finished up at Oxford, and I'm hopefully going to start up a post at London University at the Institute of Historical Research. Um, but my area of specialism, there's really two areas that are interlinked. One is um, the history of clubs in uh, British history, now more sort of with an imperial dimension increasingly. And the other is on the history of corruption, of which there is a considerable overlap between the two, both in sources and in themes, as you might imagine. Um, and, and I'm having you on the, the, the program because I am writing my dissertation also on clubs. Uh, I, I do 18th century clubs and you do 19th century <laughs> uh, gentlemen's clubs and, and, and particularly politics within that. Yep. Um, so I want I want us to to when I visited you in a cl- in your club yes. um, where we drank the first port that I had ever drank <laughs> in my entire life. Um, I have a never, beside me. <laughs> oh man, it was the best. I've never I've I've ordered port uh, uh, after that, and I've never been able to get port that good. Um, but I, I one of the things that was remarkable to me as I walked um, to your club was just what this area of London where all these gentlemen's clubs are, what, what it looked like. Can you, can you tell me what, what that area looked like in the 19th century, this area of London club land? Yeah, I mean, I, I would look at the geographical centre. Just for clarity, we, we were in the National Liberal Club, which is unusual because it's actually more in the political districts around Whitehall and Westminster, whereas the real geographical heart of club land is around two streets, um, St. James's Street and Pall Mall. Um, St. James's Street was where the aristocracy had their houses in the 18th century. And I'm not really doing justice if I say they're houses. They're basically like giant country mansions that just happened to have been plonked down in the middle of the capital city with no gardens around, um, although there were some back then still standing. Um, and then Pall Mall uh, was extended into because uh, the Prince Regent, who was the future George IV, uh, was desperate for money. So he sold off Carlton House, his uh, his large palace, which included the whole of what's now become the south side of Pall Mall. And so this large parcel of land was for sale just when there was a huge craze for clubs kicking off in the early to mid-19th century, um, and it was the fashionable place to be. So if you were looking to try and outdo people for large sets of sumptuous premises, that was where you went to. And what do these sumptuous premises look like? Because they're they are impressive. They look they they tell you something about what goes on inside these buildings. They vary period by period because for the for the period you're studying, actually, the a lot of these 18th century houses are more like people's homes in some ways, very grand homes, um, but they are, you know, a, a place of, like a really sumptuous sitting room which might seat thirty people. By the time you get to the nineteenth century and clubs are getting bigger and bolder and they're trying to show off as much as possible and outdo one another. Um, they're building clubs which have rooms that can seat 300 under one roof. Um, they're building really impressive things that are very influenced by the fashionable Victorian architecture of the day. So there's a bit of Gothic revival. There's a lot of classical revival because they want to show how learned they are with all of these temples with Greek and Roman influences. Um, and there's a lot of uh, Italian revival stuff as well uh, with sort of Renaissance influences and a lot of gold. <laughs> A lot of gold. I'm imagining like 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 oak chairs with like with like gilt and like a, a like lots of 
oil portraits. Yeah, and it, right? it varies from the very tasteful to the completely tasteless. Um, and I was actually about to make a quip about how um, the short-fingered Bulgarian Donald Trump would like this very much. But, of course, he's, he's quite relevant to this because um, in the mm-hmm. modern day – um, an idea that was come across by uh, not Trump himself, but by his lawyer at the time, was why don't you stop losing money on Mar-a-Lago and turn it into a club? And it's become an incredibly lucrative sideline for him. Um, I I always feel um, that when I'm looking at things as a historian, I'm looking at how they are in the present as a journalist. And when I'm looking at things as a journalist in the present, I think about them in the past. Um, and the connection between these sort of very modern, trendy, exclusive clubs today that are set up and the very earliest clubs of the 18th century, it's, it's much, much closer than you might think. Yeah. Well, let's, let's, let's dig into, in, in, into, into why that is in a quick moment. But I want to I just set the stage mm. a little bit more. Different. And you said that these, these gentlemen's clubs, they, they could sit over 300 people. Now, now was that like, mm. I mean, a gym can sit 300 people. Was that unusual at the time? Like, how hard was it in London to get a space for 300 yeah, I mean, people. bear in mind that Parliament is uh, the, the, the London at the time is is very, very cramped sort of city. Um, it, you know, it's one of the main trading outposts uh, posts of the world. It's interconnected with the whole globe, um, and everything's been built and rebuilt over and over from this small medieval town of London that's expanded and expanded into new areas. Um, so, actually, finding places. I mean, to give you some idea, um, looking at this as a political historian. You look at what happens when whips, party whips, are trying to get hold of MPs for a vote because they need to win and they need a majority, actually, with bums on seats there in person. Oh, wait, wait, Seth, I'm, I'm an American. What's a whip? Sorry, a whip, and they, they do exist in the States, but a, a whip is, is the person who's in charge of discipline in parties, not, not in uh, the most obvious sense, but they are the people who are in charge of managing votes. They make sure that enough MPs are actually there physically in person to win a vote. So you might have 300 MPs in your party, but if only 200 of them are turning up, you're not going to win. Um, and the point is that back in your period, for the 18th century certainly, um, they would have a hell of a time going around 50 different dining areas in different restaurants in Soho, door to door. By the um, certainly the middle of the 19th century, they only need to go to two or three clubs. And they can round up most of their MPs. And that gives you an idea not only of the scale, but of how well connected these people were and how it became terribly convenient um, to have so many people under one roof in that sort of way, for, especially from the sort of uh, governing elite at the time. I mean, we're talking about a time before telephones when it's actually to, to, to get people into the same room at once uh, on a short notice, you have to walk over to them. Yeah, well, remember that clubs are really good at embedding technology early on. So we now think of them as these very fossilized sort of places. And the reality is that when they were at their height, they embraced modern technology. They were the first buildings to use telephones in London. They were the first to use uh, telegraph wires, the first to have electrical lighting, and before that, the first to have gas lighting. So the whole idea behind them was to try and be the most well-connected, up-to-date headquarters, as it were. Um, They conducted their business in a very informal sort of way, but they were modern and vibrant and interesting. Now, when you and I might think of the stereotypical image of a London club now, and you think of a sedate old room with lots of old farts who are falling asleep over their newspapers, that's what the clubs look like when they're in decline. And that's what they look like in the 20th century. And they spend most of the 20th century in decline. But that's not um, what is a sort of archaeologist of the, of the past we encounter when we see these places in full flow. 
Well, so let's, let's describe what if, if I'm walking along Paul, uh, Paul Mall and I go into one of these clubs. What do I see? What sort of rooms are there and what are people so doing? In, if, first, if I was allowed to get in. The first thing you see is uh, a porter's lodge with a porter who's there to check that you are who you say you are and that he knows you or that he can find someone who can vouch for you to get in. They're very, very strict on inclusion and exclusion and knowing who people are. That's very important to the whole idea of a club. Um, Once you get past the porter and satisfy him, you're then probably in a main foyer, a sort of uh, giant atrium uh, with lots of function rooms and balconies and things coming off of it. Um, And it's basically like a, a large set of leisure facilities all under one roof. So there's a dining room which will be open at all hours. There's a bar that will be open at all hours, irrespective of whatever the licensing laws might say. Um, There are card rooms for gambling, which, though completely illegal at the time, is also very, very fashionable. Um, So it's a place which has at least some of these basic facilities given over to pleasure. It might be a library for literature and so on. And some of them can be very elaborate. They can have swimming pools and Turkish baths and um, gymnasiums, etc. I mean, the really extravagant clubs, uh, of course, actually far more so are in the States where they, they take that model. And I think you touched on that briefly in terms of how the, the American clubs uh, went into their own. But um, Britain is, is I think, what, what popularized the London club. And we, we can talk about the origins of the club maybe, but I'm going a little off topic now. Well, and, and, and you, you could – some people lived in them for, mm. for part of the year, right? Oh, and, and still do. Uh, it's rare. <laughs> but uh, yes, um, the dumb thing was usually to make sure that your rooms in a club were as grotty and unpleasant and small and cramped as possible because the facilities in the club itself were so luxurious that obviously many people wanted to live there and be waited on hand and foot. Um, but mm. It was not uncommon, especially amongst younger people who were less well-connected, didn't have a townhouse, didn't have an apartment in town, and for the first time wanted to go to town. And remember that up until hotels are revolutionized in London, which is really with the um, with the Savoy in the 1880s and, and the Ritz in the 1890s, before that point, hotels are considered really very disreputable. I mean, they're thought of as being synonymous with a brothel. So no one wants to admit to staying in a hotel. And a club offers in the 19th century a, a, a face-saving way of saying that you stay in town as a guest without any questions being asked and, and a lot of these amenities that you're talking about they, they, they it was really hard to get yes. them in a respectable way outside of the club i'm thinking even of, of 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 dining like we think right now that it's natural that you can go to a restaurant and order your food and and choose off a menu and get hot food brought to you at almost every time of the day but that 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 came from the club it came, it came to france through the club when french people went over to england and they saw English clubs, they're like, wow, look at how they're able to order food at these clubs. And they anyway, so 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 the club's amenities were 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 not only luxurious and rich, they were also rare to get them yes. in a respectable manner. You, you we would now probably yeah. be astonished at how basic some of them were. Um the food in clubs wasn't necessarily ever good. Um if we take the most sort of legendary chef in, in Clubland, it's Alexis Soyer, sort of genius for self-promotion and a popularizer of cookbooks and so on. Um he's probably best known for inventing the the mobile battle kitchen, um, which was used mm-hmm. in the Crimean War and was still being used 90 years later, that allowed hot meals to be served out in, in the field. But um, that doesn't necessarily mean that his day-to-day food was particularly good. Um, if you look at club minute books, it's not unusual to come across things like, well, we had a joint of lamb which we just kept over the fire for three days and we just picked into it as and when we felt like it. Um, let, let's, let's, let's turn, Seth, to... to uh, 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 your particular 
uh, a specialty in clubs. And let's talk about the political aspect of clubs and about a particular kind of person who went to these London clubs, MPs. Now, in in, in your book, you have a a statistic that's pretty shocking that uh, from the time period, uh, what, 1830 to 1867 was your your date? 19 out of every 20 MPs members of parliament were a member of a club. Yes, and that, that figure probably underestimates the total because there are still gaps in the archives. It's probably more than 19 out of 20, but yes. So, so, so yeah, tell, tell me about how politicians use clubs. Like, were they, like, we've been talking about London clubland as kind of like a homogenous mass, but like, what were, were there particular clubs that appealed to particular kinds of politicians? Yeah, I mean, the, the thing to remember is that before 1832, um, clubs are there as a nice leisure facility on the fringes for people who are interested in it. And very often, aristocratic people of the day are, are members through hereditary connections, etc. The 19th century sees several big things upended on that. Firstly, mother is the necessity of invention, and Parliament burns down in 1834. And when Parliament burns down, the current Houses of Parliament takes about 35 years to build. And during that time, with Parliament being a building site, um, it's just not suitable for political activity, party activity, planning, leafleting, campaigning, electioneering, fundraising, candidate selection, all these kinds of things that are normal political activities can't be done on a building site. So conveniently, they look over their shoulders and they find that there are several politically linked clubs and they start to set up their own. Um, so you get the Carlton Club for the Conservatives and the Reform Club for the Liberals. Um, and it becomes a period. I mean, it, Norman Gash popularized this phrase, the idea of club government, um, you know, an, an era where you're literally running the country out of the drawing rooms of a few clubs because they're the only large central spaces in Westminster and you can control exactly who comes in and who goes out. And there's a bit of an overlap as well. I mean, th- th- this book really deals with the period when MPs were involved in political clubs. But there's also a wider flourishing of clubs Um, because of the Industrial Revolution going on in the background. You go from having a tiny middle class in the UK to a huge one with a large disposable income, and they all want to spend their money in the way that the aristocracy spends their money, but they can't get into these traditional clubs like Whites and Brookses and Boodles. So they say, fine, we'll go off and set up our own inclusive clubs. Except then then the next group of people come along, um, having made their fortune, they say, well, we're not that inclusive. You can't join us. So they have to set up their own. It's a little vicious cycle that helps drive it along. There are various things around recruitment and and around um, balancing procedures and so on. But the point is, there's a real demand for clubs like wildfire all throughout the 19th century. And they're constantly building and creating new things. So um, in... 1830, there aren't really more than about 30, 35 London clubs with premises of their own that can't be recognized. Um, 15 years later, you're looking at closer to 70. Um, by the 1880s, you're looking at at least 200. And by the 1900s, you're looking at about 400. I mean, when you, when you go around Britain today, you'll see lots of, of, of houses that uh, were Former clubs yes. that, that that came up in this in in, in 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 this time. It was it was, and we we you get a sense that um, between friendly societies, um, which uh, tailor, uh, catered more to the working classes, uh, it, you know, most men it seems were by the end of the nineteenth century a, a member of a club. But let's let's go back to these politicians because I just want to I want to I want to get at this at this peculiarity of this of, of this moment. Mm-hmm. So. People, where did people, these guys vote if there if there wasn't uh, 
a House of Parliament. Like well, they didn't vote. There in are the temporary chambers that are set up, and they're voting in Parliament. But it's so drafty and cold, and in in some cases, it's open air with a sheet of tarpaulin over Westminster Abbey. You know, it's just not suitable for any length of time. So what they're doing is they're setting up uh, taxi cab round trips with hansom cabs and horses and carriages that are literally doing the three-minute round trip from the Reform Club or from the Carlton Club to Parliament and back again. And you see that they, they start setting their opening hours and closing times, things like, um, well, we normally shut at one in the morning uh, in the dining room, but uh, anyone who comes in within five minutes of uh, Parliament ceasing to sit can then stay eating and drinking for as long as they like. You know, you get a very good sense of, the, of their priorities there. But they're there to, to subsidize and support the political associations. Um, and they're also full of people who rather fancy themselves as, um, you know, being political uh, wheeler dealers. It's quite interesting. You, you get a sort of new class of election manager and uh, political activist that emerges from this. Um, and there's been a lot of literature over the years. I mean, Charles Dickens wrote about it, Nancy Trollope wrote about it, this idea of you've got these meddling election managers that are turning up everywhere and buying elections at a time where uh, electioneering was notoriously crooked. Um, the more I looked into it, the more I realized that actually the electioneering side of stuff was really quite limited. The budgets were very small. I mean, it was, you know, they, they would account for maybe 5% at most of the money spent in the election. Um, and very often, they, they weren't really going anywhere that was more than a, a two-hour ride out of London. You know, they, they weren't actually that interested in selling their hands in democracy and all these sorts of things as the system was evolving that way. But um, what I find fascinating is that the image is still very, very strong all throughout Victorian literature, this sort of nightmare, this boogeyman of we are being governed by clubs. In fact, the term club government was originally a, a boogeyman that a Whig whip by the name of Edward Ellis came up with. He said, you know, if we carry on going the way things are going, people are going to be shouting about club government and, and then we'll never be able to shut them up. So so how, how, how well, let's talk a little bit more about how clubs change politics. So, yeah. so clubs change politics by, by allowing politicians to have a social venue and clubs change politics politics by allowing people who are kind of hangers on to politicians or some politicians to use the new social venue of the club to do electioneering. Yeah. But how, 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 how else was there was like, is it just that these places were like, you know, just cool places to hang out or what? Yeah. Outsiders a way in for the first time. I mean, remember that 1832 is spoken of as the Great Reform. Actually, it arguably wasn't that great. It, you know, maybe expanded the franchise from three percent of the UK population to six percent. To put it into perspective, um, but it did allow a whole group of people who weren't involved previously in politics to get involved. That process happens again in the Reform Acts of 1867 and 1885. And each time, you've got more and more people who've previously not even had the vote who are suddenly able to get involved. Um, and they're able to hobnob in this way. If you read, for example, the journals of Benjamin Disraeli, who's a sort of shameless uh, man on the make in the 1830s and 1840s, he spends his whole time hanging around clubs to try and uh, make the acquaintance of people who can further his career. And there's a lot of that. Um, it's, it's why, actually, politicians tended to go towards some clubs rather than others, because they knew they'd be buttonholed shamelessly by these uh, young men on the make otherwise. So, 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 so clubs were. You have this exclusive place that that still lets some people in, and and that and that kind of permeability lets new people begin to to, to participate in politics. No. And, and and this really stops being a hanger on uh, for for my American listeners. He he becomes prime minister uh, and leader of of of, mm. of the Tory party and a a romantic novelist. Um, 
but so so what else, what else does how, how does clubs change politics like in, in this time well the the whole background context changes because we go from um a period where 40% of elections in the UK are uncontested. In other words, you just stand and you're immediately declared elected without a single vote having been cast to within a few decades, 100% of elections being contested. Now, that's a radical transformation because first of all, you need to start finding people to contest hopeless elections for the first time. So the club becomes a center for where do you raise your money? Well, you've got a politically themed place where several hundred, if not several thousand idiots are already paying a large amount of money just to be able to access a living room. Of course, they can uh, be asked for some money. So that's actually quite important in terms of fundraising. Um, It becomes a center for how parties organize their literature, how they print them. I mean, the the leaflets are literally printed in the clubs and then sent around the country. Um, The subscriptions are sent around the clubs. We don't have the profession of the election agent really um, in central government until the mid-19th century, and their offices are in the Reform Club and in the Carlton Club. Now, the parties start to take that um, in, in hand, uh, in-house in the uh, 1870s. You start to see a transformation with the Conservative Party organization and the Liberal Party organization, rather the National Liberal Federation in its first iteration, and both of them copy the club model of full-time professional agents in that way. Um, so they, they adopt the club model. And indeed, when Parliament itself is being rebuilt, who do they commission to build it? They commission Charles Barry, known for the, the Travellers Club and the Reform Club, and their brief is to make it as club-like as possible. So we have a Parliament, known throughout the world as allegedly the mother of all Parliaments, where members' facilities include a tea room and a smoking room, and they are consciously modelled on the proportions of club rooms, even the, the dining room, uh, very much so. I mean, I mean, this is it's it, uh, it, it's sometimes hard for me to hold this 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 political useful image of clubs in my head, especially the nineteenth century club, because a lot of what I read about the nineteenth century gentlemen's club is that they're a space of domesticity, that they're a home away from home, um, an eveless Eden, a place where men can go and hang out with other men in a highly domestic space. How 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 do you see the politics and and this kind of like cozy, sleepy, fireside, drinking and chatting and eating? How, how do they coexist? Or do they not? Is is my view of the domestic club just because I'm used to declining clubs? Um, well, no, I, I probably agree about that. But I think the idea of what is domestic is constantly being reformed uh, and reconstituted throughout this period. Um, what I'd actually more disagree with is, is, is around the idea of exclusivity, because they start as the most exclusive of places, you know, pure aristocratic um, territory. But you see a massive dilution of that all throughout the 19th century as they are seeking to uh, bring in new numbers of members, as people who can't get into one club are set up in others. There are several dozen clubs that are called junior, so that you have the junior Carlton for people who can't get into the Carlton. You have the junior Athenaeum for people who can't get into the Athenaeum, etc. And these are often two, three times the size of the original club that they're named after. So not only within the elites within central London uh, does the the pool actually get quite wide in the first place, but you have the club model itself that becomes a template for lots of other things. I mean, I've talked about how it's a template politically, but it becomes a template for leisure organizations. When you look at boxing clubs, rowing clubs, football clubs, all throughout the UK, they adopt the club model and the club constitution 
as their template for how they do this, right down to systems of election and blackballing and all these sorts of things. Um, and crucially, in terms of looking at the scale of these places, um, I think there's a really a, a big need to look at the working men's clubs, which are often overlooked. Uh, there is a certain tendency to, I think, wrap up uh, looking at clubs in the sort of snobbery of the period and think that the working men's clubs had nothing to do with this. But the Reverend Henry Solly in the 1850s popularizes the idea of the working men's club. And the idea is very consciously to bring a slice of Pall Mall into the communities up and down the country. And you have literally several thousand of these things cropping up all around the UK. Well, there is there's a tension within the club mm. about exclusivity and inclusivity because if you're in the club it, it it's it's it, it can be an inclusive space but but the club exists by 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 virtue of the fact that you can that 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 not everybody can get in yeah. it's something that i'm 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 wrestling with in my in my dissertation research because in the 18th century club there's a lot of differences between my clubs and your clubs my clubs uh, are less tied to a venue um, they uh, usually just have rooms in a, uh, a, a you know, a, a drinking house. Um, they can go from room to room. Sometimes they just move from house to house. Uh, they're much smaller. Um, and I, I, they're, they're, they're much less elite because they don't have to buy a house. But one of the things that I think unites them is that part of the value of them is that they're a place that once you get in, you can feel like you're at home, you can meet friends, you can get access to particular amenities, but there's that act of, 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 of getting in. John, mm. John Tim was in, in one of like the, the big 19th century club historians had a, had a, had a, had a, word, a, a phrase for this that I always mix up. It's either that clubs united to divide or, or that clubs divided to unite. I can't yes. remember which no, no, one. I think there's a lot of truth in that. Uh, this actually reminds me of uh, the quip about the United University Club, which was for graduates of Oxford and Cambridge universities only, so that they were united against universities. <laughs> but I mean, what? What? I think I think that it's something about the character of the club that I'm trying to get at in my yeah. dissertation work that I can't exactly pin down right now. But there's mm. that that. That within in, in my clubs, there's a lot of work that people do within the club to make sure that everybody's equal to one another. Um, you call each other brother in, in, in a lot of clubs. You're not allowed to talk about particular things that mm -hmm. might remind you of, of of differences. You're not mm -hmm. often you're not allowed to talk about politics or religion. Mm -hmm. uh, in friendly societies, you're not allowed to gossip about other people or to to to, to make fun of somebody for for. Uh, taking money from the box. Mm. Um, and there's all this work that they do to make themselves equal. And they talk all about how they're, uh, how everybody's equal and brother brotherly. But then they also have like beetles standing at the door, making sure that nobody can get in. Yeah, that's not right. a member. Right. Um, they, they have vows of secrecy to say, you can't talk about anything that happens in the club outside mm -hmm. the club. Um, do you, do you see a similar tension? Or, oh, absolutely. Or no, 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 there's a huge tension on that. Um, but I, I think it's a wider societal tension as well. Um, you know, mm. if you look at any, uh, any societal grouping, any ethnic grouping, any nationality, uh, however inclusive the nationality may be, they very often have a conception at this time that uh, the rights of man stop at their borders or universality has its limits. So yes, we're, we're dealing with a very um, 18th and 19th century set of ideas about inclusivity up to a point and then stopping yeah. the boundaries of their club. They're almost seceding from the wider society that they're in 
when they are yeah. a member of their club and they are defining by that in that way. Yeah, that's a good that's a good way to to to, to put it because it, it explains some of the uh, I've I've found clubs that just seem like drinking clubs that have these really rigorous rules mm. to secrecy. Yep. You know why? Like a, a a club that all it seems to do is to have dinners of tur- uh, turtle and venison, yeah. and then they say you cannot reveal the secrets. Maybe they had some sort of gross initiation ritual mm-hmm. that they couldn't. Uh, <laughs> uh, but there there seems to be something more. And what, I thought of this when you talked about Mar-a-Lago because I think that that's really that that like tension of the inclusive exclusive is 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 something that the Trump's gaudy style is, mm. is selling for Well, that, that's writ large because, of course, when Mar-a-Lago was set up, the big issue on Palm Beach was the number of restricted clubs, which had a policy of no black members, no Jewish members. And Mar-a-Lago was trumpeted as the inclusive non-sectarian club. Now, I'm not sure that most people would think of Donald Trump today as synonymous with inclusivity, but that was the pitch at the time. Um, and it's, it's trodden that uh, identity, um, you know, in, in a number of iterations through the years. But uh, what I, I think is a key differentiation between your century and my century for the periods we study is that clubs are much more institutionalized in the 19th century. They're much more bound up in these trappings of a great building, bound up in the yeah. standard format for a rule book has to be like this. Um, there is an expectation yeah. that these services must be provided or else you're not a club. There's less flexibility. Yeah. There's less ad hoc fly on the wall sort of stuff. Um, <clears throat> but I mean, in my, my dissertation, I have a chapter that looks yeah. at the institutionalization of club minutes. Yeah. Like you can, you can trace in particular long with neighborhood clubs and their minute books from when they're just kind of attendance sheets with, with random notes written on the back mm. to really formal minutes that, that, that don't look out of place for any kind of, you know, for, for a joint stock company, yeah. you know, again, meetings of people of like 20 to 40 people for dinner and drinks, right. like it's not a serious purpose, but they're, but, 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 but all across the country, the, the, the way that these clubs get administered becomes really, really similar That's right. over, over my century. But, but the crucial um, point of differentiation, I think is 1799 and the union club. Now the union club is yeah. a club in, uh, what's the time new square it's now Trafalgar square in the center of London. And that is crucial because it is the first club in Britain to be owned by its members. Everything up until yeah. that point was a proprietary club. And so essentially it was run by a private landlord for profit and their word was law and they could do what they wanted. Even though the trappings may be very elegant and there may be a more complicated relationship between the committee and the landlord, ultimately the landlord ruled the roost. Um, when people start to own their own clubs, they behave very differently. They become irrationally protective of it in some way. They also indulge in a number of very bad business practices for a whole other series of reasons which uh, consign them to poverty and uh, a long, slow decline. But the point is that um, the 19th century saw the rise and fall of these member-owned clubs, whereas now, when we look at these trendy modern clubs, and Mar-a-Lago is a very gaudy example of that, they're very close, I would argue, in spirit to the 18th century clubs, which were proprietary clubs made for a profit, run as a business. Yeah, I, I mean, my my century, like people just don't have the 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 financial and organizational might to do half of the things that people in your century do. There are a handful of gentlemen's clubs that have really big, opulent uh, venues, but but most are, are are small and take place in dedicated club rooms in a in, in a tavern or an alehouse. Um, 
I had a, I should have written down this question. No, it's fine. Just while you're collecting your thoughts, I'd also add yeah. that even if we look at the most opulent clubhouses of the 18th century, something like Brooks's um, Palladian style mansion um, or Boodles to this day. Mm. They're quite small compared to the 19th century counterparts, you know. Yeah. Um, but yet that was yeah. considered a big thing that somebody had a house essentially that was a whole club. Yeah, yeah. I, so I, I, my, what I, I, I have a, a slight dispute with you about the turning point, and it, mine. I have a different date. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's 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 not 1799. It's the early 1790s when suspicion of clubs uh, uh, because of the French Revolution mm-hmm. led. To friendly societies coming under under state uh, 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 supervision, mm-hmm. um, friendly societies which had previously just been this kind of ad hoc uh, set of benefit clubs that 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 uh, poor people and, and or, or you know lower middle work, working people would join to to provision social insurance, suddenly became um, uh, uh, the object of state concern. Mm-hmm. And there was a law I forget exactly. I think it's 1793. <laughs> but don't quote me on that. Do you remember when it was? Uh, not off the top of my head, no. It's, it's some, sometime in the early 1790s that said that every friendly society needed to have a list of uh, have its have its rules, have its 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 bureaucratic apparatus uh, 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 looked at by the local justice of the peace. Mm-hmm. And I see all these clubs, a lot of clubs in, in in Scotland, and just concerned about this. They're like, "Are we a friendly society?" Mm-hmm. They take their rules over to the local JP, and the JP goes, "I don't know, you're a friendly, you're a debating society. You don't need me to look at these rules." And then they're they're like, "But we want to be in compliance with the law." And then somebody gets upset and reports them. But but I think that that forces a lot of of the clubs that might sink beneath our notice to pick up uh, this kind of 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 institutionalized bureaucratic apparatus on mass yeah. after after this act a lot a lot more clubs have to think of themselves like consciously as clubs and to think of themselves mm-hmm. consciously as clubs they have to adopt these kinds of institutionalized behaviors no i i'd agree with that actually i think that um makes a lot of sense in terms of contextualizing why this move to rules came about um yeah. and interesting enough uh, you're familiar presumably with gilray's uh print of the union club uh, yes, which we, yes. from 1801. It's basically uh, just for our listeners. It's it's pandemonium breaking out with all these well-known politicians sort of involved in fights and brawls and drunkenness and, and idleness. Um, but the point is that you know, for all these great trappings, they're still quite raucous, informal kind of places. Um, the point I would make about the Union Club being important is that all through the 19th century, and I had this amazing eureka moment when I was doing my research, looking at how clubs were set up and looking at their minute books for their first ever AGM where they were constituting themselves as a club. And over and over again, what they would do is hold up the union club's minute book Mm. and use that as a template. And they would go through paragraph by paragraph and either say, we'll adopt that wholesale, we'll not adopt that, or we'll amend that in that sort of way. But it became the template. Now, um, I think you're onto something in terms of the the reasoning for why that is and why this obsession with codification comes about. But um, I think there's also something about the deeply appealing idea of co-ownership amongst the members as to why they choose of all the different club constitutions out there, they go for the member-owned ones, or the union club. Yeah. 
I mean, this this practice of working off of a template is 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 common in the 18th century as well. I haven't. You don't see people. We, we don't. People don't write as much about about what they're doing. But it's clear that, especially for say sporting societies, people are are borrowing their uh, one another's minute books and copying out minutes and rules. Mm. Um, for learned in the 17th century, I found uh, uh, learned societies. Um, asking one another for copies of their minutes, mm-hmm. not to get scientific experiments, but to see how they run their meetings mm-hmm. um, and consciously copying that. So I think that's I, that's a, a, a big part of the transmission of, it's one of the things my dissertation is trying to do is to say, look, when we talk about the 18th century rise of clubs and societies, in part, what we're talking about is the spread of particular kinds of, of administrative practices, of keeping yeah. minute books, and, of, and also, of holding votes. I, I think um, it's, it, you know, being so familiar with this period and being uh, so close to it in some ways, we often overlook that people in the 18th and 19th centuries, by and large, weren't that educated, even amongst the elite. Yeah. And they're looking, yeah. I mean, they're blagging. They, many people still today are blagging their way through power and so on. And they're looking <laughs> at a plausible-looking, sounding set of official notes they can appropriate on yeah. their own and just say, yeah, this, this is how this is done. Yeah, yeah. What does a president do? Well, like when you're club president, if somebody elects you, what do you do? Uh, I, I don't know. I, bar, I remember seeing one guy. Yeah, um, but let's let, let's talk a little bit about 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 one exclusion in the club that I I, 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 I talk about in my dissertation, but I don't exactly understand mm. fully, and that's and that's that of gender. Yeah. So um, clubs are are a byword for for homosocial. Uh, male interaction, men hanging out with other men, um, having fun with other men. Yep. And I can't exactly figure out why. And my, mm. my mystery, for, I, I've told you this offline, but I have a mystery mm. of, of what makes this especially puzzling. But the British club form goes to a lot of different places mm. uh, after, after it develops. Yep. When it goes to America, the American clubs are by and large male only, uh, at least in the 18th century. It goes to France, and both Masonic clubs and and political clubs uh, very quickly begin to welcome female members, mm-hmm. and eventually uh, have women running the club as well. To have have women in 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 offices of government, which you never see in an 18th century mm-hmm. club. You might see women visiting. You might see a woman member. You never see a woman elected president or treasurer unless it's an all female club or it's a joke. Mm-hmm. Why? Why? Why is the British club so male? It's, it's not an easy yeah. question to answer because, um, I mean, I've, I've been looking a lot at the period where it was almost already set in stone, um, and, and I'll tell you why it's, it's particularly perplexing to me. Which that by the later Victorian era, mixed sex and then women only clubs are increasingly quite common, and they become very, very fashionable until at least the interwar years. And we can go into the reason why they have a sort of rise and fall. But yes, it is genuinely perplexing to me. Um, I tended to think of it as reflecting uh, male only or male emphasized society being not uncommon um, with other sort of comparable rituals. So I'm thinking, for example, uh, the idea that even when you have mixed company at dinner in the early 19th century, the ladies will still withdraw um, whilst the men have yeah. cigars afterwards. So there's clearly already in polite society this idea of some level of segregation that's going there. But yes, the, the club does seem to massively escalate that. Um, what I yeah. would say, though, um, with the 19th century hat on is that 
this is a relatively short period, actually. You know, I, I start looking at a bit in detail from the 1830s when they expand massively. And the first uh, women-only club is set up in 1861. The first mixed sex club is set up in 1874. Um, by the 1880s, mixed sex clubs and women's clubs are very common. Um, Erica Rappaport did a really good um, section of a book on on this, actually looking at women's clubs and how they sprouted around uh, the area just south of Regent Street, the major shopping thoroughfare, because it was the idea that this was one of the few times when Victorian women could exercise their agency and their independence by having shopping expeditions, and so the club would support their social needs around that. So they could stay in town, they could dine their friends, etc., all, all in one go. Um, and Ladies Clubland became a sort of geographically remote entity. Again, there was this odd segregation north and south of Piccadilly, the street running east to west through London. And you had the ladies clubs and the mixed sex clubs that were north of that because all the uh, club houses to the south were already taken on those sites. Um, none of this actually gets closer to answering why this initial separation takes place. But I think that it had already occurred to people um, that it was a very artificial separation. The other sort of wider bit of context that's interesting is the treatment of guests in general. Because yeah. um, up until the 1840s, you do not set foot in one of these major clubs if you are not a member yourself. There just are no guests allowed at all. Um, by the 1850s and 1860s, they're starting to relax things quite a bit so that um, most of them have a guest room, but it's usually a converted toilet round the back in a small cubicle, which is not appealing. And you may have a glass of water under protest, but you're not to be made welcome in any way. Uh, you know, they're terrified these visitors will run off with the jewellery or the silverware. Um, by the 1870s, 1880s, you start to get very sumptuous uh, areas to receive people uh, and you even to have a meal maybe sometimes in the day. Um, people want to show off, basically. You know, they... they if, if you have a club of one and a half thousand members, only two or three hundred of them are going to be on the premises at any one time on most days, at the most. And you may get very bored of these people a lot of the time very quickly. Whereas you want to bring your <laughs> friends and you want to in, incorporate them into that. You want to encourage them to join one day as well. Um, as the 20th century gets on, um, more and more of the clubs actually become open to guests and visitors, and they end up becoming almost entirely accessible uh, in that sort of way. So the the, the blurring. Uh, it goes away. But um, yes, the, the elephant in a room in that, of course, is women are not exposed to any part of the club before around 1830, 1840. You know, there's an uproar at the Carlton Club when uh, the landlady of a Tory MP who is in debt turns up demanding the money that she's owed and she dares go into the main central atrium demanding her debt and they say, how dare she set foot there? They're more annoyed about that than the fact that they're their members in bad standing with the debt. Um, so, yeah. There, there, in, the, in the 18th century, we have, I, I'm shocked by some of the similarities. There, there are a number of all-female clubs. There was a mm -hmm. uh, 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 at least one all-female literary club in Edinburgh in the 17, as early as the 17, uh, 1718. Mm -hmm. um, the fair, uh, what are they called? The, the, the Fair Literary Society or mm -hmm. something like that. There are a number of all-female clubs. Mm -hmm. You don't see men and women in clubs together until the 1770s. Mm -hmm. There's an all, there's a, there's a mixed sex gentleman's club uh, that runs for a couple of years that, that where, where men and women participate in high stakes gambling. Mm. Um, I'm blanking on its name, but what oh, you I never see 
it's it's in Almax. Yes, it's in Almax. It's a, it's a but it's not it, it, it's a separate club and it, it 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 I think eventually gets its own house, um, and the house fails and there's a court case about it. Um, but you never see women in in, in administrative roles, and I'm just mm. there's but there's something about the outsider and the woman that 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 is is interesting here and i think that 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 both in some ways impinge upon the freedom that it's the that 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 the club is supposed to provide mm. and i can't exactly articulate why but i think there's something at least in my time when 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 strangers come into the club room and when women come into the club room there's something that that restrains the people from doing what they would otherwise do mm. um and maybe that can help like it might be different in the 18th century where the clubs are 20 to 40 people one um, thing i would throw into the mix is is going back actually to almax i mean for our listeners um the salons of london were very club-like um, and were very, very fashionable areas. But the, the big difference to the salons was that you didn't have membership. You didn't have the right to mm. turn up whenever yeah. you wanted. You bought a ticket for a night, and the tickets were controlled by lady patronesses, as they were known. Yeah. And enormously powerful women in society would make and unmake people as was, was their want. Um, and as a result, there was considerable resentment to the power that was wielded actually by these women to effectively uh, shun certain people in society. Uh, now the, uh, the, the Almax, which later becomes Willis's rooms, uh, goes under in the 1860s. It's the last of them, and, and quite a few of them are already on the way out by the 1840s and 1850s. I wonder if there's something about the club as a reaction against that by men who don't want to have to go begging on hands and knees for admission into polite society again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what I, I look a lot at, at 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 paperwork, and one of the things I I would be surprised the salons probably don't have rules, right? They, they aren't self governed. They are regulated, absolutely. But again, it's it's more along the proprietorial model. You know what the yeah. patronesses say goes. Yeah, and it, but it's not self governing. The people don't don't make you know they don't have votes. They don't There's have no these right political I mean, the rules are there, and yeah. they're set by the landlords. Yeah. Yes, all that they do. Yeah. Well, I, to close, I, I have a big question for you, and it's a question that I ask myself every day as I'm writing cover letters and trying to justify my own work. But mm. why clubs? What can we learn from them? What's important? Why should people go out and buy your great book, Club Government, um, or support? You know, give me a postdoc. Well, thank you. Yes. <laughs> I, I think they teach us about human interaction and what people share in common and how they behave in relation to one another. Um, I think mm. we have a lot to learn from how uh, the world was created in the first place and why it was created. You know, I, I got so used to, as a political historian, approaching stuff that seemed to emulate. The, the structure of a club in politics in Westminster. And I just kept asking myself why. I, I think I had the first germ of this idea in my very first graduate job as a, as a researcher in the House of Commons. And um, I was politely informed that the very grand panel room in the outhouse that I was working in was an old gentleman's club that had been requisitioned by Parliament for use as a research facility. And the first question I had was why? And no one could tell me. <laughs> <laughs> and so really, I've spent the, the 15 odd years since then trying to work out yeah. why is it that this strange, obscure section of hidden London society, hidden in plain sight, seems to have uh, prompted so many parroted institutions all over the world and yeah. seems to uh, still exercise a lot of informal power and influence. My my uh, uh, big example of this. Once you get your club goggles on, I, I don't need to tell you this, but but you see them everywhere. My my big example. Of this is the uh, national anthem of the United States. Mm -hmm. 
Um, do you know where, where, where it got its origins? No, no I don't. Um, it is the club anthem of the An- Anachronic Society. I'm probably mispronouncing that. An- <laughs> Anach- I, I will post it in it's some sort of Latin word, but it's but but it is it is a club anthem of a of 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 a of a, of a musical society um, that was greatly influential, sp- spawned imitators in in the United States, and the song was so popular as a club drinking song. Ah. That when the American revolutionaries wanted to make an anthem, they're like, "Well, we'll just choose this anthem. It sounds great, doesn't it?" <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I, I know the Anachronics very well because, again, they're one of these Gilray cartoons that's terribly yes. and scathing, full of these fat men. Out. <laughs> yes, <laughs> there's a good uh, a good book, The Romantic Tavern, that has that has a a, a, a bunch about about their society, about their them them letting in women. Anyway, Seth, I, I, I won't keep you for very much longer. Uh, but thank you very much for 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 joining me. Absolutely, um, thank you for listening. Uh, thank you for listening. If you're listening, thank you to Duncan Barton for Image and Jonathan Lear for our music. Uh, if you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes or do the rest of the thing that you do for things that you like on social media. 